Listeners, readers, welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little bit better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, lecturer, editor, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. I am so excited today to dive in to one of my very favorite books of all time, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. So um, any of you who have been listening for a long time know that my favorite book of all time is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Lolita is kind of a, a very close second in lots of ways. And I'm so relieved and so pleased because I, I had this experience where for, you know, like a good 15 years, I could not feel good about reading, let alone teaching Lolita. And then a woman named Claire Dieter came along and um, wrote a book called A Fan's Dilemma and had an incredible, or Monsters, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma is the name of Dieter's book. And she basically built this incredible argument that allowed me to read Lolita once again. For that argument, head to the Fox page and listen to um, my 48-minute discussion of Claire Dieter's incredibly incisive and incredibly readable uh, memoir slash theoretical study of what we should do, we, what each of us should do about, uh, you know, really incredible art made by really reprehensible men. So, um, happily, I really feel like I can dive right into Lolita and I'm so happy to share this with you. I am um, not doing a regular three-part lecture on the text, um, honestly, because I just don't think people would do it. I think what people are going to want to hear is like why I can read this book and then maybe later we'll do it if if people are interested in it. Um, I, I think that we have to kind of really dig into why you might want to read this book because it is such a hot button for people. So, um, but again, Dieter makes some very good arguments and essentially what I'm going to do in the next 45 minutes is is describe um, it from my, from my perspective um, as, a, as, a studi- a stud- as a student of literature um, and as an ardent fan of this work for a long time and all of the work by Nabokov, um, I, I would like to sort of back up her argument with a close look at some of the prose, which is such a delight. I mean, she talks about the greatness of the prose in, in her book, um, and I would like to further explore that greatness with you. Okay, so Lolita was born, born, wow, that is not true. Lolita was published in 1955. It was published in Paris, although Nabokov was living in the United States at the time because he couldn't get anyone to, uh, to publish it, and rightfully so. Even in 1955, or maybe especially in 1955, people were having reservations about the, uh, the topic. And it was finally published in Paris by the Olympia Press, which is an imprint that did a lot of pornographic stuff. And it was, on many levels, it was a disappointment to people because it was not, in fact, the pornographic work that they were expecting. Um, It was going to be sort of, you know, a racy, like, not a bodice ripper. That's more like a romantic thing, but it wasn't sort of smutty. It was, in fact, this very elevated prose that we're going to dive into. So, and, and then when people recognized the greatness of the prose, in fact, the book had, um, you know, sort of made him in many ways. He was born, Nabokov was, in 1899 in Russia. 
in um, and he died in 1977 in Montreux in Switzerland. He wrote nine novels in Russian before he switched over to writing in English. He wrote a little bit also in French, which is insane. It's a little bit like Joseph Conrad, these, these writers who we sort of forget the fact, I think, that this incredible prose is written by someone who was not a native English speaker. I mean, he was one of these like very upper crusty Russian people who in fact had to leave during the Russian Revolution so that you know the proletariat did not kill him and his whole family. So he emigrated, uh, I believe, to Berlin. Um, he spent some time in Paris, but he had grown up speaking certainly a lot of French, but also some English. So he it's not like he learned to speak English, I don't think, when he was an adult, um, but, but he was you know much more comfortable in many ways in Russian. So those nine novels in Russian, I mean, honestly, I would practically learn Russian just to be able to read them, except that Nabokov's of in English is so large that I have been very satisfied, in fact. Um, and I'm just, again, I'm relieved that I can go back to reading Lolita like annually, like I used to. Uh, in 1918, he went to Cambridge. He studied romance language there and some philology and entomology. He's a very big lepidopterist, which is a person who studies uh, butterflies. And he, in fact, in his travels around the United States when he was there teaching uh, at Cambridge and at Wellesley, at, not Cambridge, teaching at Cornell and Wellesley, um, he and his wife, Vera, spent a lot of time traveling around the United States. And he, in fact, um, taught, I think, some lepidoptery at Harvard, or at a minimum, contributed um, some butterflies to their, uh, to their collection, to the Harvard butterfly collection. Very big deal. The reason why I'm mentioning all of that is because this guy was just so smart. You guys, this is like one of these people who just, like, oozed intelligence. I mean, just, you know, many, many languages and also science and also, um, I think he was a very good tennis player. I mean, the guy, like, what couldn't he do? In 1923, he married Vera. Um, he was engaged to another woman and, but, and, and was, you know, very much in love with her. But when her father found out that he wasn't ever going to amount to much financially, uh, the, the his future father-in-law made the daughter t uh, break off the engagement. But, um, all of the sources that I have read over the last many decades, um, all of the biography that I can find about Nabokov really speaks to a lot of passion that he had for his wife, Vera. And um, and they were very, very close. So Vera, they slept in separate bedrooms, which I love because my husband and I do too. Mostly, mostly, I'm doing like a, you know, quotations here. Um, mostly because we have so many dogs and my they all snore and it doesn't bother me at all and my husband can't sleep. So he sleeps in our daughter's room. Um, but I was like, oh my gosh, wait, Bill and I were just like Vera and, um, and, uh, and uh, Vladimir. So they were married in 1923. He did at one point have an affair, um, but, uh, you know, I guess Vera found out about it. They were apart for some long length of time. I don't know, maybe because of immigration status, who knows? Well, actually, lots of people know. I just don't know because I can't remember because my memory is so shitty. Um, but aside from that affair, they seem to have, um, a, and you know, they their marriage survived the affair. The reason I'm going into a little bit of depth there about the biography is because 
Claire Dieter makes this very clear, there is no evidence that Nabokov was anything like Humbert Humbert. That is just not, that. that is a conflation that we have all made. And we do this thing that Claire Dieter talks about, which is that we judge the art itself. And if it's reprehensible, then we don't want to read it. It's fine if you don't want to read the confession of a psychopath, no problem. I don't have a problem with that, although we do, you know, there's a lot of interest, I think, in reading books by, you know, that the tell about terrible things happening. Um, but, but in this case, um, it's important to recognize that Nabokov, in fact, there is no evidence that he was depraved in the way that his main character was. Okay, um, and when I was looking in the Wikipedia to do my sleuthing, because as I said, the biographies have gone out of my head, I really did like um, the sort of pricey about his work and about sort of why his work is so compelling. And the things that are noted in the Wikipedia entrance are, um, you know, in the entry, are complex plots, clever wordplay, daring metaphor, and prose that is both uh, intensely lyrical and also given to parody. So there, you know, it's it's this incredible experience where you have this incredibly elevated, very very intelligent um, diction and and word choice and wordplay and metaphor and construction and all of this kind of interesting doubling and mirroring and all of these anagrams, all this different cool stuff happening. Um, but it also all of it feels like a tiny bit tongue in cheek in a way that is so genius. It doesn't take itself too uh, too seriously, which is incredible because it is very serious. Like it is so well done and so intelligent and so deep that it would be very easy to sort of take it too seriously. Uh, but but this kind of parodic, this kind of satirical um, overlay, in fact, makes it feel much more interesting, at least for me. So. Lolita um, was named um, in, in the Modern Library list of the 100 best novels. Lolita was number four. And uh, Pale Fire, which is an incredible other novel by Nabokov, was number 53. So Lolita is a book that did well commercially and is certainly esteemed as, you know, a very great literary feat. Uh, okay, so when we dive in here to the prose, I want to do a couple of things. One is that I, I just want to um, look at the foreword because I want to underscore this idea that Dieter has of of um, this idea that that uh, one of the main things that Humbert Humbert is doing, and that I think people forget, especially people who have never read the book but claim to have read the book, they don't forget it exactly, but they don't take it into account is the fact that Humbert Humbert is reminding us over and over and over again that what he's doing is awful, that he's depraved and he's a monster and he's a horrible person and that what he's doing is a crime. So it's not, he's not trying to convince us of his innocence. In fact, it is the opposite. So the entire book, I think it's it, it, like, this is part of the genius is there's very careful construction. It is a confession that Humbert Humbert is writing from a jail cell after he has been apprehended, um, after a murder and after all of a car chase and after all of these different things happen. The book is very plotty. There's a lot happening and it's really, really good. Of course, I forgot most of it because I was so starstruck by the language. I also have a shitty memory for plot. But um, I was so taken this time also by how much mystery and intrigue and like, it's like a thriller. I mean, who knew? 
Again, a lot of people knew. I just seem to have forgotten. Um, but one of the ways that, that this construction is, is created is there's a foreword that is written by another guy who is not Humbert Humbert. So most of the novel is a confession told from the first person by Humbert Humbert, who is um, the pseudonym of this person who has emigrated to the United States and who falls in love with this 12-year-old and um, you know has, has a sort of affair with her. So we are gonna go to the foreword and it's written by somebody called John Ray Jr. Uh, so he has a PhD, he, he lets us know that. Um, it is also interesting, so one of the things that Nabokov does so, so well throughout the entire uh, book is this motif of doubling, this motif of, of, of things uh, having a twin, essentially, and having lots of times it's like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of a thing. It's, it's, it's kind of, well, it's not kind of. I mean, ultimately, we get down to this question of Humbert Humbert versus a very important character. In fact, I'm not going to say a lot more about that because I'm not going to spoil it for you. But you have this kind of good versus evil, although they're both kind of evil. But you have this this question um, of, of good and evil that, that this Humbert Humbert, whose name is itself a doubling, um, you have this question of him and his double uh, and, and what is who is going to survive of the two of them. But right from the very beginning, we have this John Ray Jr. And if you look at that carefully, it is J.R. Jr. So right from the jump, you have this J.R. J.R. So you have this idea of doubling and this idea of, of things having two sides, often um, a nod to this kind of Manichaean idea of, um, of good versus evil. So we have John Ray Jr. in the beginning here um, making a lot of the same argument that Claire Dieterer makes and in fact that Humbert Humbert will make himself but there's a very um, there's this nice kind of authoritative overlay because we have this fictive person who is um, you know he's not a real person this John Ray Jr. guy neither is Humbert Humbert but it, when you have this doubling of, of the, the person who's two authors you know you have the author who's writing the foreword and then you have the author of the text itself the, the the sort of former is conferring authority on the latter. Okay, so he says in the foreword here, at least 12% of American adult males, a conservative estimate according to Dr. Blanche Schwartzman, verbal communication, enjoy yearly in one way or another the special experience HH describes with such despair. So we have this idea, I mean, this is made up. This is, these are not like facts. And actually there's, Humbert, Humbert is a good example of an unreliable narrator. There's a lot of, um, when he goes on a, a little bit later to talk about how, um, you know, Dante, when he fell in love with Beatrice, she was very young and he gives an age like eight or something. And that in fact is incorrect. Um, and then he talks about Petrarch falling in love with Laura when Laura was like nine or something. And that also is incorrect. But there, the, those are um, older men who fell in love with younger women. I mean, literature is rife with them. We have Lewis Carroll, you know, with this Alice person. We have all sorts of um, examples of older men who um, married young, you know, teenage girls, you know, who are 13 and, and 12 and that kind of thing um, throughout history. And a lot of that is presented in the book and a lot of that is true. But but this idea, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true or not. This, this I, it, I don't think it purports to be a fact here because it's in this fictitious, um, fictitious introduction. But essentially he's saying Humbert Humbert is not unique 
this is, again, it's exactly the argument Dieter um, is pulling from the book, which is this idea that Nabokov knows that, you know, in this case, apparently 12% of men act on this idea, act on this, this urge that Roman Polanski, you know, said in court as part of his defense for raping a 13-year-old girl, which is that, you know, everyone wants to have sex with young girls. Um, it, it's the same as Woody Allen saying the heart wants what it wants. I mean, th there's, this, the, um, there's this very clear articulation here of that idea. A little further down, he says, a desperate honesty that throbs through his confession does not absolve him from the sins of diabolical cunning. So there is this idea of, again, of he's not absolved, he's not looking for absolution, and he is diabolical. And again, this is something, so we read about that in the foreword, but then we also hear uh, Humbert Humbert himself. So on page 40 of my, um, my version, which is the annotated version. It was so funny, I had a little frisson because um, this guy, uh, Alfred Appel Jr., um, he did his annotated version at Stanford. And so in the beginning, it has a little forward and it says Palo Alto and then the date. I think it's like 1975 or something. It was a zillion years ago. Um, but I was like, oh, Palo Alto. Hmm. It's right near, my, right near my house. Okay, so um, if we're looking here on page 40, um, I'm just going to pull out a couple of things. Um, I remember the thing so exactly because I wrote it really twice. I copied it out with obvious abbreviations in my smallest, most satanic hand in the little black book just mentioned. So this idea of satanic, so he's this is a casual kind of throwaway thing here, but there is this sense of him as being awful. Uh, he says, why does the way she walks, a child, mind you, a mere child, excite me so abominably? So there is this idea of him as understanding his crime, understanding the gravity of it, and this question of why this idea of satanic handwriting and this idea of why does it excite me diabolically, this is the kind of language that we see throughout the entire novel, this, this um, sort of admission on his part of how sick he is, of how awful this crime is that he is committing. So this kind of, um, you know, talking about himself as diabolical or satanic, um, there, there's, there's a lot of that kind of language of how depraved he is and, and how abominable he is and how awful he is. So you have that kind of thing throughout. Uh, and then occasionally, for example, on page 134, you have Humbert Humbert aligning himself with real predators, like understanding that he is a real criminal. So he says here, I have to tread carefully. I have to speak in a whisper. Oh, you veteran crime reporter, you grave old usher, you once popular policeman now in solitary confinement after gracing that school crossing for years, you wretched emeritus read to by a boy. So there's this idea that, you know, he's naming all of these different people who would, you can very well imagine men in these positions, um, you know, having these kinds of crimes as, as part of their lives. So you have, you have this sense of him as being of Humbert Humbert, not as being this exceptional case, but in fact, this idea of him as being entirely ordinary. And what is important about that is because then we can look at Lolita as an example of something that speaks to the darker urges urges that's a terrible way to put it it's it's a it's it speaks to um this horrible impulse that so many people have and that some of them in fact act upon okay 
So um, then I want to move on to this idea of, of Lolita as really being sort of absent from the novel in a way that's very important. And again, it was really Dieter who allowed me to see the importance of that, that essentially Lolita's absence in the novel speaks to this idea that when you have sexual abuse of a child, you rob the child of her childhood. And in fact, we shouldn't be able to see Lolita because she is not a child. She is not, um, you know, she's not someone who is allowed to feel uh, herself and have agency and have a voice. Okay, so if we look at page 140 and 141, more and more uncomfortable did Humbert feel. He talks to, about himself in the third person more than once. More and more uncomfortable did Humbert feel. It was something quite special, that feeling, an oppressive, hideous constraint, as if I were sitting with a small ghost of somebody I had just killed. So he says very plainly that what he is doing is killing her. What he is doing is, is ending her life. Okay, and then if we go to page 283, in the infinite run, it does not matter a jot that a North American child girl named Dolores Hayes has been deprived of her childhood by a maniac. Unless this can be proven, and if it can, then my life is a joke. I see nothing for the treatment of my misery but the melancholy and very local palliative of articulate art. So one of the things that we come up with at the end is this notion of, of this book as being a testament to his love for this young girl. So there's this idea here of, um, of, of having really deprived her of her childhood and how it, it, all of it is for naught unless he can sort of apotheosize her. Like if he can sort of, um, you know, show us this, the, it, like the beauty of his love for her, what he doesn't understand is that because he has in fact stolen her childhood, there is no she doesn't get an apotheosis because her she has been robbed of selfhood um it is a really incredible uh you know prose depiction of this kind of the uh, you know th this uh the psychopath but also it's um it, it, because she is absent it's it's sort of a depiction of his love for her but we don't get to see her because she is not a willing participant in this. Okay, um, and then we look at 284. This is, so Lolita at one point is talking about death. You know what's so dreadful about dying is that you are completely on your own. And it struck me as my automaton knees went up and down, they're bicycling, that I simply did not know a thing about my darling's mind and that quite possibly behind the awful juvenile cliches, there was in her a garden and a twilight and a palace gate dim and adorable regions which happened to be lucidly and absolutely forbidden to me in my polluted rags and miserable convolutions. So again, he's very clear about this notion of he as being criminal and of her as being absent. And, you know, the first, we looked at that on page 140, this, this happens relatively early in the book, this recognition that in fact she is absent. So I want to do a thing now where um, I want to take a look at the prose. So what we usually do if we are in a live lecture is I will get some dice out and I'll throw some dice. Um, but I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to uh, pick some random numbers. I'm going to pick the number 64 and I'm going to pick the number 8. So we're going to turn to page 64 and I am going to go down to the 8th line 
and we are going to take a look at the pros because I am a big believer that if a author, if an author is worth his or her salt, um, that you can turn essentially to any page, even in a long novel, uh, and have prose that really rewards rereading and prose that will really offer up much more than just the story on the page. So I'm gonna go eight lines down, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, um, here we go. Camp will teach Dolores Hayes to grow in many things health, knowledge, temper, and particularly in a sense of responsibility toward other people. Shall we take these candles with us and sit for a while on the piazza, or do you want to go to bed and nurse that tooth? Nurse that tooth. Okay, so I didn't even know where we were really until I got myself situated. So this is Charlotte, who is Charlotte Hayes, is, um, is, is Dolores Hayes' mother, and she is with Humbert Humbert, and uh, he is a boarder in her home, and she is has an amorous thing for him at this point. So um, she's talking about Dolores going off to a camp, and this idea of um, Dolores Hayes will grow in many things. So uh, I'm going to just do some analysis here because I really want to show you how rich and incredible the prose is. And this is not even like super clever prose for like Nab Nabokovian kind of, um, you know, standards. But this idea of... Um, when when uh, Charlotte is saying, camp will teach Dolores Hayes to grow in many things. One of the things, one of the sort of motifs that is that is sort of sown throughout the novel is this idea of Humbert Humbert not wanting her to grow up, not wanting her to become older, because there is this window of time, um, and and he says the reason he is attracted to these younger girls is because he had a young love um, who died when she was very young, and he was very young when they were both you know, preteens, uh, and he is forever trying to capture that innocent first love. So this idea of her growing is totally anathema to him. So when you have Charlotte Hayes talking all about this, um, you know, he's, he, this is not what he wants to hear. Um, also, Charlotte, importantly, the name Charlotte is from Charles, Charles meaning um, like a man of agency, like a man in control. Um, I think that's right. All of a sudden, I'm like, wait, that doesn't sound quite right. But I, I think, I mean, you know, it's something like that. Like it's a, it's a, um, like a Charles is like one of those big authoritative names. And so Charlotte is a, a, a diminutive of that, but still, um, you know, someone who has a lot of kind of potency and, uh, and presence. But Dolores is, so Dolores means, um, in Spanish, it means like pains or, or sadnesses. It's like, um, like dolor, like if you have a dolor de cabeza, like you have a, like a headache, um, it, it's like an aching. Um, so this idea of Dolores, um, as, as being painful, as being like many, many pains is really important. This idea of Nabokov as, as giving her that name. And then of course, Hayes, um, there's a lot of, uh, this idea of, of um, in, in, in this case, he's spelling it H-A-Z-E, but in other cases, uh, her her father, I think it's Harold Hayes, um, is H-A-Y-S. So there's this idea of, of haze, of her being haziness. There's also an idea of hazing, this idea of hazing, this poor girl. There's also this, um, you know, again, this idea of doubling. You have H-H, which is Harold Hayes, and then you have Humbert Humbert. So you have this idea of, of the father, and in fact, he does often pretend to be her father. So all of this is evoked by the fact that when um, Charlotte is talking about 
Lolita um, to Humbert Humbert, she's using the full name Dolores Hayes, and that Dolores Hayes is in fact evoking all of these different things um, if you are a careful reader who's really digging in. So then this is what she's going to learn. Health, knowledge, temper. So, um, you know, these are things, her mom, Charlotte, is actually a little bit like Julia Louis-Dreyfus, you know, typical mom, not typical, but like in this case, uh, Dolores herself, Lolita, is getting um, almost to be a teenager and there's a little sort of strife between them. But Charlotte is kind of uniformly down on her daughter, like just does not think Lolita is a great kid in any way and is very critical of her, especially when talking to Humbert Humbert. So this idea of health, knowledge, temper, they're kind of random, these things, and I'm sure if I had more time to think about it, I could give you even more um, about them. Temper, um, you know, is one of those things that that her temper flares with uh, when she is with her mother. But there is this idea of, of both going to camp and learning um, to have a temper, like she has some independence and some distance from both her mother and from Humbert Humbert, that it might allow her to sort of um, kindle some sense of, of agency and of temper. But of course, Charlotte means that she will be able, she'll be tempering herself. She'll be like learning to control her temper. Um, and this idea of tempering herself, um, she has in fact her first, uh, I'm not gonna tell you, but she she um, she has some sexual awakenings at camp that, that sort of, um, that that is kind of a tempering kind of uh, an element in, in all of the different nuances of the word temper. Um, that's kind of a weird way of putting it, but. This is my off the off the top of my head analysis here. Uh, okay, and particularly in a sense of responsibility toward other people. So this is interesting too because when she goes to camp, in fact, it, you know, as a young teen or a, a preteen, she is fairly self-absorbed, and this idea of having responsibility for other people is so ironic because Charlotte who is the mother, has no responsibility for her daughter and is totally shirking responsibility by sending her off to this camp. Um, so in lots of ways, these are things that Charlotte is sort of projecting onto her daughter, Lolita, that she wants her to learn. Um, and then she says, shall we take these candles with us and sit for a while on the piazza? The piazza is so funny because um, Charlotte Hayes is, um, she aspires to be a certain level of social, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, social strata, stratum, a certain level of social, anyway, she wants, she's a kind of a social social climber, really. Um, and so this idea of calling it the piazza is, is this kind of elevated diction that's just kind of ridiculous because Charlotte Hayes um, is really very clueless where Humbert Humbert is concerned and um, it, it, it's very much kind of a poser thing. She did spend her honeymoon in Mexico with her husband, Harold Hayes, and in fact, that is where Dolores is conceived and they're around this house where they're all living there are lots of different sort of Mexican artifacts so I find it even funnier than that she's using this Italian word the piazza um, it, it's just sort of this melange of all of these ways that she's kind of trying to um, you know strive socially trying to sort of feel like someone who is cultured okay and then she says or do you want to go to bed and nurse that tooth so he has feigned a toothache so that he can essentially escape from Charlotte. 
And what's interesting here is she says, in quotation marks, all of this is being said in quotation marks, um, it's dialogue that she is delivering to Humbert Humbert, but then his response is not. So what he responds is, nurse that tooth. So, but it's not in quotation marks. It's not something that he says back to her. And it's, then there's a space break. It's the bottom of the, um, the chapter, chapter 14. And there's this incredible intimacy that it's like he's saying it to himself on some level, but he's also saying it to us. Um, and if you recall, he is writing this entire piece of, you know, this entire manuscript is being written from the jail cell. So he's writing all of this in retrospect, and yet there's this incredible immediacy. And part of it is this thing of him like telling these things in real time, and he's speaking both to himself and also to the reader uh, when he says, nurse that tooth. We are so kind of closely aligned with him um, th that you do in lots of ways feel kind of gross. Like you feel kind of gross. It's not a great selling of the book that you feel gross, but it is very interested to feel somewhat implicated in these kinds of things. Like it's, it's, you're, you're, you're so close to his perspective, um, that, that you feel sort of, sort of implicated. So I want to close by, um, by not, I can't, I was going to read this part at the end of the book. That's just so moving and, and has, it, it just made me feel so much emotion and compassion, but I realized I can't do it because I would spoil a couple of different things. But what I will say is that what is said, um, at the very end of the book is also echoed, echoed in the very beginning of the foreword. You have kind of this, um, this beautiful uh, bookend thing happening. You also have Lolita as the first word of the novel and the last word of the novel. There's this incredible, um, I just have found this rereading so moving and so emotionally um, wrenching in some ways and so profound because of this idea that Claire Dieter has given us about the idea of Humbert Humbert, in fact, being depraved, admitting he's depraved, and essentially having, um, you know, having just eradicated this poor child. So again, sounding very dark it is very dark but i promise you this is a book that if you are interested in prose it is so incredibly well done the the plotting is incredible a lot is happening a lot is going on in every single paragraph so um if it sounds remotely interesting to you i would advise that you read it or read something else by nabokov because all of the work is incredible but if it's a book you've been curious about and have been feeling like you cannot read uh, because it is in fact a lightning rod for all of this kind of um, cancel culture and all of this idea of um, you know predatory older men, you can feel okay about the fact that in um, you know in fact we should not be judging Nabokov just because he was able to tap into these very very dark feelings. So. Thank you so much for tuning in to this. Um, it wasn't a deep dive. It was a shallow dive into Lolita um, and happy reading. <laughs>